today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. As you remember, this time yesterday, we were uh, sweltering in temperatures that were probably a good 10 degrees warmer than what we are now, certainly with the humidity, it made it feel that way. Uh, Obviously, as we look back over the past couple of summers, it's pretty safe to say that uh, the weather is getting more interesting, to say the least. Certainly uh, a bit more volatile. To talk more about that and... Uh, Is there an issue in regard to the weather alert system? Because we are where we are, it appears we're getting more of these. However, does that mean that we're over-publicizing them or there's just more reason to do so? Let's bring in Anthony Farnell, Chief Meteorologist, Global News. He is with us now. Anthony, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, thanks for having me on today. So your tweet was very simple. If a severe thunderstorm watch warning is issued in your area but nothing occurs, are you less likely to listen to future watches and warnings? And then, of course, you answer. You, you can answer yes, no, uh, it doesn't matter. What's the feedback been like on that? What's your take on all of this, being a professional? Yeah, well, the feedback is, is kind of what I assume, that, yeah, if you uh, cry wolf, if you throw out a bunch of watches and warnings and see what sticks and there's sunshine overhead and nothing happens, uh, yeah, people eventually are, are going to stop listening to those warnings, whether it be on TV, via radio, or now everybody gets a lot of these alerts on their phone. So you just kind of get rid of that, you swipe it away, you don't even check on it. And I think some of that has to do with the fact that these severe thunderstorm watches in particular uh, get popped up so early in the day, and in some cases, I don't see what Environment Canada is looking at and, and, and really would love to see them try and narrow down and, and use some skill in forecasting what areas will actually get thunderstorms. So what is happening here? What's your concern? Well, my main concern is they just need to, to switch this entire warning system. There, there's a lot uh, at stake here because, obviously, uh, when it comes to things like like freezing rain in the winter and severe thunderstorms and tornadoes, these are the, the type of warnings that, that the public needs to get, and they need to be able to rely on it and trust it. And what the problem is right now is that these uh, Environment Canada zones are so big that sometimes you can have a thunderstorm that's, say, a uh, 50 or 100 kilometers away from Hamilton itself, and yet somehow it gets grouped into the same warning box. Right. And, and that is uh, millions of people in some cases, like yesterday in, in the GTA, about 2.8 million people were under a severe thunderstorm warning. And I saw on radar one thunderstorm that was over North Whitby, uh, about 10,000 people living in, in, in its path. So it, you see kind of the general idea of why why this can be such a problem. So is this a, a flaw or, or oversight when it comes to Environment Canada and how they issue these warnings? That's, the, that's where the, the warnings originate, correct? That's where the warnings originate, yes. We, uh, as in the private sector, do not issue our own warnings, and I, I see so many problems if, if we did start doing that, because then who would you trust? What local station, what uh, online blog would you, would you go to for, for warning? So I, I, I do agree that, yes, they need to come from a government source, but the problem is I think they're still just using old technology. They're using a system that, that was not great to begin with. And about a decade ago, or maybe a little bit less, but the U.S. switched to something called polygon warnings. And for severe thunderstorms, basically you're, you're drawing a box on that individual storm, forecasting it out, and then you're warning everybody in the path of that. And I think that's something that we really need here in Canada. And, and speaking with Environment Canada, I think it's still several years away. Uh, this is obviously about uh, communication, Anthony. Uh, what about using 
you guys and girls in some way? Is there not is there not any way that you know somehow everyone's you know keeping in touch with what's going on? I mean, is is there are they using uh, enough of the information at their fingertips to their advantage? Well, yeah, and I, I would like to think that the answer is yes. I know uh, anytime you have a government agency, there's a lot of bureaucracy involved, and, and they maybe are more inclined to use the Canadian computer models and Canadian radar, which in some cases is quite good. In others, it's just not <laughs> not comparable to right. uh, when I'm looking at a storm coming in towards Hamilton or Toronto, I'm mostly using the Buffalo radar because it's a much better radar system. And I know there is a plan to upgrade the entire network here in Canada, and that is something to do with the warnings as well. So uh, as far as, as us forecasting and, and myself being a meteorologist and, and being a been doing this for 15 years, I see setups that I think are conductive to severe weather and others that aren't. And well, as far as yesterday goes, I just got a, a little bit angry because I, I just didn't see it and I didn't see the need to 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 basically advise so many people, uh, put them under a watch. You know, that's fascinating, Anthony, because normally people are ticked off at you and now it's the other way around. It's the weather guy that's ticked off. I love that. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's full circle, I guess. Yeah. I, I should watch what I wish for, though, because I know uh, even when you nail a forecast, it somehow uh, down the road will come back, uh, come back to bite you. Uh, one other thing about yesterday is uh, I know you were probably saying it on, on your airwaves that there was a heat warning in yeah. effect for Hamilton, and there was not a heat warning in effect for Toronto. And this is another thing that I think needs to be ironed out, and a lot of that had to do with the criteria that they used, the fact that Hamilton was close to 30 for two days in a row and, and Toronto just missed that mark, yet it was actually hotter and more humid in Toronto than Hamilton yesterday. So it's just kind of confusing, and, and I think it just needs an overhaul, this warning system. So is this an, an accuracy issue, uh, a technological issue, uh, like an updating, a technological updating issue, or an organizational issue? Uh, I, well, I think it's uh, a little bit of everything. I, I know definitely technology-wise um, you need to get the wheels going early because it takes some time to implement this, and especially if you're not just a local station or, or a local office, you're trying to do this across the entire country. So you need money to do that, you need uh, technology, but you also need the right people in place and and. and the, you need basically the public to to urge the government to, to make these changes. Environment Canada needs to do that. It sounds like what you guys and girls are doing uh, at, at various media outlets is probably more on the ball, more accurate than what they're giving you. Is that what you're? Is that what I'm? Is that what I'm interpreting here? That at the end of the day, well, they're not well, doing I, as good a job as the private sector is on all of this. Well, I, I like to think us here at Global. We have, we have trained meteorologists. We have. The best technology at our fingertips. We we use computer models that uh, I know that Environment Canada actually doesn't have access to. So uh, that's something that that I'm see. That seems to be bizarre. Here. That seems bizarre right there, Anthony. That you guys are using tools that they don't have access to. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's not that they they don't necessarily have access to it. I just know that they don't use it. This right. uh, some of these smaller uh, scale models that we use. They may have something of their own, but we're using something that's that's proven and, and that is constantly being improved because our weather system is, is attached to the weather company and IBM, and, and we get upgrades all the time. So I'm not comparing apples and apples, but I know that I'm pretty re- reliable and, and, and have been doing my best to make good forecasts. 
So, um, obviously, with the weather the way it is, anybody, you know, whatever your your thoughts are on, on, on climate change, all of that stuff, it does seem to be certainly a little bit more unpredictable than what it has been in the past for, for areas, say, like southern Ontario. How, how does that add to the issue? How does that make it more complicated? Is there a case that we're issuing warnings that don't need to be issued, or there's just so many of them coming up, and we go, oh, there's another one, who cares, you know? Yeah, and, I, and I, again, I think it's a little bit of both. I, I know that this summer uh, there have been severe thunderstorms. There have been a few reported tornadoes, although not nearly the amount compared to the warnings that were issued. So, uh, yeah, severe weather is, is definitely a part of southern Ontario's summer, basically, and, and it, it has been getting... I think in the last decade or so, a little worse. Yes, we have had more severe weather, but if you, I haven't done this, but if you maybe added it up, all the the rain and thunder and and storm reports versus the amount of warnings issued, I I do think uh, the graphs are are not proportional. I think there are way more warnings today than than there have been uh, in the past. So what are your viewers saying? What's been the feedback on this? Uh, Are people taking these uh, more with a grain of salt now? Do they do they do they heed the advice? It, it is mixed, but I think overwhelmingly, yes, people are are just like any news information over the past few few years. You're you're just being bombarded with so much extra information and so much coming from so many different sources. So it, it's only normal that there's a bit of complacency and and people just take it with a grain of salt. So you you really need to stress the urgent storms versus say a garden variety thunderstorm and that's what our job is to in the media to to broadcast and and tell people what ones they really need to take seriously and i'm just thankful that we haven't had that big tornado yet and and really tested the new warning system and i know when tornado warnings are issued if 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 you're in that area you're going to get a text even if you don't sign up for it so this is something new that still has to be tested out across canada and where are we with that because again this is a work in progress is it not it really is, and, and ideally the, the plan is to have a warning show up on your phone, say, if you are in the path of that storm. Right. With some of the test runs, with some of the uh, problems that they've had, uh, your station there in, in Hamilton may broadcast, uh, or our TV station, Global, because it's an Ontario license, will broadcast this red screen and a tornado warning showing up on the screen if it's occurring in Thunder Bay and you're yeah. you're in Toronto. So, I mean, that is obviously a problem and something that I don't think uh, people need to, to see. Uh, that being said, is this really about the warnings or is that, that it has just become unpredictable? You know, there's all sorts of stories of people who are out on lakes in the middle of the summer and all of a sudden the weather changes it, it, and, it, and it can change uh, on a dime. So at the end of the day, do we just have to accept that new reality? And with those comes the warnings? Yeah, I mean, I I think as the weather extremes happen and and as the as much variability as there is, I, I do think technology and and our forecasting skills are also improving at a similar or even greater rate. So it's not that this is something new that uh, that people are, are experiencing this year. But what is a bit different is that when these storms move over a populated urban center like. Hamilton with flooding in recent years and of course downtown Toronto's gotten it not once but twice this year those storms in particular are the ones that need to be forecasted accurately because there's so much of these farm fields and and subdivisions that have come in here in the last few decades that that's 
in a way changing the climate on its own where that rain now has nowhere to go but into the sewer system and and then we end up with these floods all right can't let you go without getting uh, something for the weekend how are we looking here uh in southern ontario and specifically hamilton well, if you're not a fan of yesterday's extreme humidity, uh, you're definitely going to like the forecast. Today already a bit better. It's going to continue to cool down. So the next few days, the sun will be back. Lots of sun heading into the weekend. Uh, but those temperatures, even at night, getting down maybe into the single digit, something uh, we haven't had very often uh, over the last few months. Uh, and then there's some rain from what was Tropical Storm Gordon. That's going to move in Sunday night and Monday. So that's the next chance of uh, wet weather. All right. And what about the fall? Is this going to be as mild a fall as it was last year? I, I do think September overall, a very warm month. And this is something that we've been following for years, the fact that summer seems to extend into fall. And I do think that may last even into October. So uh, an active hurricane season, the next couple of weeks, we're going to watch these storms. Florence is out there in the Atlantic. That, of course, even if it doesn't affect us directly, can impact uh, the weather pattern for the next few weeks. So uh, we're going to be watching that. But uh, I do think overall a, a warm fall ahead. All right, Anthony Farnell has been with us, Chief Meteorologist, Global News. Make sure you're watching tonight for all the latest. Anthony, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. All right, thanks for having me on. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. This is interesting considering where Hamilton has been of late on a sign. Uh, remember, it's something we've been talking about for, um, uh, boy, uh, at least a decade. Uh, Laura Babcock, of course, very much involved in Hamilton's sign in the sense of trying to bring it to people's attention. Uh, as we look back on uh, past city councils, we release, we, you know, we, we've heard that this has uh, been on the docket for an awfully long time. And then eventually through private uh, initiative, we have the Hamilton sign that you now see uh, down by City Hall. And of course, uh, lots of options with it, lots of different lighting arrays, so on and so forth, and has attracted an awful lot of attention. Big guitar down there uh, for, of course, uh, the Canadian Country Music Awards, which are in town this weekend. So you can be sure there'll be a lot of tourists, a lot of people taking pictures next to the Hamilton sign, as they do in many cities that have a similar sign. So, that being said, do we need one as soon as we cross the border? Hey, you're in Ontario area. Place to stand and a place to grow. And by the way, we're open for business. That's what Doug Ford wants to do. And it'll be interesting to see exactly what this sign looks like. I mean, remember the debate around Hamilton? It took us years to finally even get it done. Is it just, you know, open for business and then one of those little signs in the corner like you see at the gas station? So in the daytime, it's or during business hours, it's on, and then it shuts off when it's not business hours, but ours stays on. And uh, are we making too much out of this? Or are we making too much out of this? And uh, just a lot of pomp and rhetoric. Let's bring in Peter Gray, political science professor at McMaster University. He is with us now. Peter, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. So what are your thoughts on the sign? Do we need a sign that says, hey, we're Ontario and we're open for business? Is it a bad idea? Is it a good idea? Is it a, should we be working on something else? Well, I mean, from a kind of cost-benefit analysis, I'm not sure that probably the 100000 bucks or whatever it's going to cost to put up a sign is actually going to make 100000 bucks of difference in the economy. So, I mean, it is, 
in a way, it's sort of the silly season, I think. Uh, you know, it was a promise that was made by Doug Ford. Uh, he's going to fulfill it by putting up that sign. Its impact on our economy will be, uh, I presume, nil. Uh, because I think most people, when they see a sign like that, don't say suddenly, OK, I'm going to open a firm in Ontario, because before I thought it was closed to business, but now it's open. I mean, maybe as citizens, we should be more concerned that, uh, you know, this government and previous governments as well, haven't had a really clear economic strategy for this province. And so, I mean, tomorrow in Hamilton, they have a steel summit about well, what's the future of the steel industry in this province in places like Hamilton and Sault Ste. Marie. We'd be, I think, much more interested to hear, okay, well, how does the, the provincial government think about that? And how is it going to use its tools to ensure that we have a competitive steel industry? You know, similarly with the auto industry, a lot of big questions around NAFTA. Well, what's the provincial strategy? How are they going to use the levers they have to ensure the success of of that industry, which is changing so rapidly too, with you know driverless cars and uh, electric cars and so forth. But again, you know we don't get that. Uh, we didn't get that from the previous Liberal government. We didn't get much of that from Mike Harris before that. Uh, you know we might demand more of, of Doug Ford than a sign. Uh, can you not do both? I mean, does this not send a message? I'm looking at you know, is this any different than the debate was about whether Hamilton should have a sign? I mean, it was eventually private industry, I guess, and in, in in citizens that 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 donated what we have, I think we're paying to run it and operate it. Uh, that being said, is is it the same as a city sign? It, it, can you compare the two? Well, I mean, we already have Ontario signs. So what's uh, different is really that they're adding this additional thing that uh, Ontario is open for business. So are they just taking the normal... You know what? You could do that, Peter. Just take the, the, the Ontario sign that's already there and then just sort of put a slash across it from, you know, diagonally open for business. Is that what we're looking at here? Well, I mean, I think we have a premier who doesn't get the idea of the metaphor. I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously governments say we want to send a message to people who might invest here, uh, or as well as people who live in Ontario, that uh, the government is going to be attentive to uh, the needs of entrepreneurs and investors. Right? I mean, that's really the message that's being sent. You don't actually send that by putting up a sign. <laughs> it's by undertaking a series of, you know, things that matter to those entrepreneurs. Uh, and so, I mean, I think what's interesting, of course, is this is announced the same day as the government announces that it's going to push forward with the previous government's kind of deregulation agenda. And, you know, previously it was a red tape review. I don't know exactly how it's going to be rebranded under the, the Conservatives, you know, which in some ways is a more controversial thing, because as much as most people would agree we want less red tape, you know, these regulations were usually introduced because there was some public purpose served by them, whether it's, you know, protecting the environment or making for safe workplaces. And so, you know, those things are more contentious. I mean, no one really, uh, you know, people can get all wrapped up around whether we should have this sign or not. But in some ways, I think it's a distraction from the broader question of, well, how far should we go in making it easy to do business as opposed to other goals we seek, you know, whether it's environmental protection or protection of workers or, you know, other kinds of questions. Does it send a message that we have changed? There's a different attitude. Uh, well, I mean, again, I suspect, uh, you know, firms that are going to be making uh, multi-million dollar investments, uh, you know, are making use of a whole series of indicators uh, and studies, uh, you know, to make those decisions. It's not based on a CEO who might just happen to be vacationing, uh, you know, in the Muskoka, seeing that on the way up from New York State. So, yeah, that's so again, right. It's, 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 you know, mistaking the metaphor of being open for business and thinking that's a sign. I mean, I think it, it reflects a bit of Premier who, you know, made his money at the retail level. And so, yeah, the sign matters to drive traffic through your doors. 
you know, signs on the highway may drive uh, people to, you know, check out your uh, deco labels and tags. But uh, when it comes to trying to engage in economic growth for a province, you have to think at a bit of a different level than putting a sign on the highway. Does it make us feel better? Is it a self-branding thing? Well, I mean, I don't know if I feel better being Ontario open for business or Ontario yours to discover or some other tag. I mean, uh, and, you know. You know what we need? We need one of those signs where you can change the message every day depending on how we're feeling. Well, I think we're back to uh, Hamilton City Council with them wanting an electronic (laughs) sign that lights up. But, again, again, I mean, did Ontarians feel the province was closed to business? Uh, I mean, uh, apparently the province won something called the Golden Scissors Award for cutting regulations a couple of years ago under the previous government. Uh, you know, what's actually going to change under the current one? Presumably they'll continue on that on that course. But, uh, you know, again, I'm not sure we really feel better by changing these, these labels if, you know, we don't actually feel that much has changed uh, other than simply the label. Uh, why does he feel this will work? And and what does what do you think his objective is? What do you think you know, a win for him is in this. Uh, I mean, I, it's not like the perception was we were closed. So again, does it change perception? Does it, does it, does it bring in a new attitude? I think it, it does two things. One, he can stand up and say, "Promise made, promise delivered." Yeah, it's probably the easiest promise to to, to make and deliver. That being said, that's not like that's a real big one, Peter. I'm not sure we is that one worth bragging about. Well, I mean, I think the other one is that uh, you know the premier himself. I mean, maybe the people around him are different. Uh, I don't think has a really comprehensive view of how do you create a, a competitive Ontario economy. Right, our, our productivity growth has been very low for about the past uh, 40 years. You know, governments of all stripes have been unable to deal with the relative economic decline of this province. Uh, I don't think he has much on offer except let's do more of the same, right? Which is let's try and keep taxes low and let's cut uh, regulations. And so, you know, faced with well, what else are you going to do? Uh, I think it's easiest to say, well, we're going to put a big sign there saying Ontario open for business. And kind of sort of a cargo cult mentality, you know. If you if you put the sign out, then maybe the investment will come, and maybe we'll do better. But you know, it's easy to to criticize Doug Ford on this, but it's not like we did a whole lot better under the previous uh, you know liberal, conservative, and NDP government. Is this like a sunny ways sign? Yeah, I mean, maybe it's a conservative. Uh, a conservative sunny ways. A conservative sunny ways. I mean, you know, it, it's a it's good branding. If people just want to know, you know, how does this government feel? Oh, they're going to put an emphasis on business. Okay. Uh, you know, if you don't have to ask further if like, they can do anything other than put up that sign. But, you know, it, it is a kind of form of symbolic politics. Uh, I mean, we saw a lot of criticism of the Liberal government at that last Conservative convention federally for virtue signaling. Uh, I mean, this is signaling a particular virtue for the, the Conservative Party to its base. You bring up an interesting point. Uh, there, there's a poll that's on our uh, global site right now. Many Canadians believe the country spends too much time apologizing things, whether it's residential schools, John A. McDonald, blah, 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 blah. Uh, you know, lots of examples there. Uh, they're, they're sent, you know, from a federal standpoint, it certainly started as a sunny ways um, uh, kind of leadership, and then all of a sudden, uh, we found that we were apologizing for lots. We found that that we were uh, more conscious of, of what was going on around us socially. Is, is this a reaction to that? In other words, you know, Canadians are always mild. They're meek. They apparently don't stand up and and 
and uh, and and promote themselves. Not necessarily that they have to be arrogant or beating them, beating their chests, or you know, like like American counterparts or such. But is this a changing in the attitude of Ontario that you know what we should be proud of where we are? We just like the Hamilton sign. We should be we should be boasting who we are. Uh, I mean, I guess if this sign was you know reflected a real groundswell of support, it might reflect a change. I think for most Ontarians. It's kind of business as usual. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I do think it is. It's actually pretty similar to uh, the, the the federal liberals in that, again, there's you know not a huge change in terms of where the money's coming from and where it's going. Uh, there's no reason as citizens to expect that our economic performance will uh, change one iota on the basis of that sign. Mm-hmm. Right? The economy's doing well uh, in a kind of short-term sense, but long-term structurally, we're not uh, keeping up in terms of productivity changes. The sign's not going to make that kind of change. But, you know, in the short term, we can feel good about it. In the long run, it may make us extra cynical in the sense, you know, I mean, federally, there's a lot of apologies, but do they actually saying I'm sorry, you know, also has to lead to change if people are going to think it works. And similarly, saying you're open for business is one thing, but, you know, what does that actually mean tangibly uh, is another. And, uh, you know, I guess maybe tomorrow when people go down for the steel summit at City Hall, uh, we can see are the people from the province there uh, saying, well, here's a new direction under the, the Conservatives. Previous Liberal administration didn't really have much to say about the steel industry. Here's how we're going to do it differently. Uh, I guess, and I know you got to run here, Peter, uh, you know, similar to the to the Hydro One and firing of the $6 million man and all that sort of stuff, and, and everybody knew that this had you know nothing to do with your, your electricity rates, nor would they be reflected in any way by getting rid of him, but, uh, but it was at least uh, bringing forth a new attitude that we weren't just going to sit on our hands and put up with this could it be similar to that yeah i mean it could be similar to that i mean it's it's a kind of form of you know theater in a way yeah. uh, our politics is fanning theater. the flames yeah i mean it may be that if we're in a moment where people actually don't believe we can change much through politics then they're happy to have the theater of you know hitting the might high and mighty with a stick you know it's not unlike certain forms of tarring and feathering and the cherry varies and those kinds of things from past centuries uh you know, if we do decide that we can do things collectively through politics again, then we may demand a bit more from our politicians and say, yeah, this is empty. We want actually something a bit more satisfying, you know, things that will actually help us in terms of how we live, make our lives a bit easier. Peter Grab is with us, professor of political science, McMaster University. Peter, thank you for the time. Always appreciate it. You're welcome. You know, maybe it's uh, you could have, uh, you know, a sign and then um, like some pamphlets. <laughs> And you have it on, you know, one of those little roadside stops. You know, just as, by the outlet mall, just as you're coming across the border there. By the duty free. Maybe that's what you should do. You should have the sign in on the roof of the duty free. And then as you're walking out with your perfume and your cigars and your booze or whatever it is, then you can pick up a pamphlet and say, hey, I could start a business in Ontario. And all I did was come in for cheap smokes. Maybe just a website. Want to know more? Uh, you know, I, I think we're probably making more out of this than uh, what we should. But um, I think at the end of the day, it's just a, a changing of attitude. I think that's what they're trying to promote. And I think uh, what Peter said in regard to... Uh, the Ford's background in retail is probably a bit of that. I mean, are, are we are we going to see any more uh, bidness coming across the border as a result of a sign? 
I don't know, ask the mayor if a Hamilton sign means any more business for Hamilton. It's sort of the same thing. And I think it's as much self-marketing and self-awareness. And that, um, you know, it seems with the, the, the left that we've really, really turned, whether it's federally or in the past, uh, with the past government uh, provincially, I, I think he's tapping into Canadians and Ontarians wanting to feel good about being here. Want to feel good and proud of what we've accomplished. And, you know, again, I'm looking back at a past government that at the end of the day, uh, we feel better, lots of social experiments, but anything any different? You know, again, I I keep going back and and beating like a dead horse the green energy uh, plan and act and subsequent refinancing. Imagine if we had taken all that money and actually done something productive with it like built new infrastructure for transportation. Think if we'd put that money into transportation, whether it's rail, whether it's uh, uh, bridges, infrastructure that needs to be replaced. Where would we be? What if we had put it into healthcare? And instead, we're just trying to be progressive and hip. And you know, at the end of the day, we... We bought in too much. We bought in, we, we spent too much on this. And again, it was a feeling. It was a movement. It wasn't necessarily a necessity. And I think that's what's changing here with this government is, I think what they're selling is a change in attitude. You know, I remember saying when we celebrated our 150th last year, it didn't feel like a party to me. It felt like a funeral. Because I had a prime minister constantly making me feel guilty about something that my ancestors did uh, 100 or 200 years ago. I think we've done a pretty good job with all of that. Not perfect by any means. But we're certainly doing our share. And we're aware of it and we're moving forward. But really, are we feeling good about being Ontarians? Are we feeling good about being Canadian? I guess compared to what's going on down south of the border, sure, it's easy to. But I'm not, uh, I'm not convinced that this place was as warm as it was sold to us way back when. And I don't think it's as cold as it is being sold to us now. And at the end of the day, it, it all comes back to somebody who wants to represent those who are fiscally conservative and socially liberal. And whoever can come up with that perfect combination will be leading the country, the province, whatever. And I think this is just Doug Ford's style of politics. It's his brand. He's waving the flag. He's selling the sign. He's selling the brand may not translate into business dollars, but it certainly is a change in attitude. We'll give them that. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's talk about everything from pipelines to uh, NAFTA, and uh, maybe we'll even venture down south of the border. Ian Lee is with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, and with us now. Ian, thank you so much for the time. Where are you? 
I'm in uh, Warsaw, Poland. Uh, I'm teaching in a Canadian executive MBA um, here at the Warsaw School of Economics, which once upon a time in communist times was called the Central School for Planning and Statistics, and it was chock-a-block full of mathematicians and statisticians, and they produced the five-year plan for the Communist Party. Mm-hmm. And then when communism collapsed, they reinvented themselves as the Warsaw School of Economics, and uh, and uh, Canada has uh, deep ties with Poland because, of course, there's a very large Polish expat or um, uh, community in Canada, uh, often second, third, fourth generation, but there's a very large number of uh, Polish people, Polish and Ukrainian people, or of, of Ukrainian and Polish descent in Canada, and so we have these ties through some of the universities. So what is life in, like in Warsaw? It has changed. I've been teaching here since 1991, and every year I come in once for uh, three weeks and teach in the CMBA. And in 1991, 92, 93, even though the communist system had collapsed, it was still de facto a communist system. There was no private property. There were no Western brands, as we know it, no Western restaurants. There was no private market economy. And uh, it was very poor, very poor. But over the last 30 years, uh, it's matured, it's developed. The IMF uh, published a comparative analysis about two years ago of all the former um, centrally planned economies using metrics like unemployment, uh, income per capita, you know, real statistical measures. And they concluded that Poland has gone farther and been more successful at reforming and transforming itself than any of the other uh, uh, countries that went through the same experience. But to answer your question directly, uh, Warsaw is just, it's very electric. There's uh, all kinds of companies, German, Italian, Chinese, Canadian, American companies, a lot of foreign capital. The number one investor in all of Poland, of course, is Germany. Poland shares a, a long border with Germany, just like Canada shares a border with the United States. And uh, uh, Germany is a very, very uh, significant investor. In fact, just about every uh, plant, uh, auto company, Mercedes and Volkswagen and all those companies have plants in uh, Poland because the wages are quite a bit lower than Germany and the uh, and the cost of living is significantly lower. So they've invested here and they've done and they're doing uh, Poland's doing very well. Their GDP for the last uh, quarter was uh, five per, 5.2%. So <laughs> they're, they're really doing gangbusters. How much do they know about us? How much do they know about life in North America? America, for example, the Donald Trump scenario. Yeah, uh, in fact, it's come up uh, quite a bit because the polls have had a very long, special in their minds, and I think there's true special relationship with the United States. Uh, I can remember. I'm showing my age, Scott. In the 1976 debate between then President Ford and candidate Jimmy Carter, and he uh, uh, Ford uh, Gerald Ford made this horrible mistake. He said Poland was free, and uh, which of course it wasn't. It was under the Soviets. Uh, but my point is, is that they the polls follow every twitch of the American uh, political system. Um, they have always been very, very strong, close allies, whether Republicans are in power in Washington or Democrats. And I can tell you from what I've been reading and seeing and hearing, um, Trump is not despised like he is in you know quite a few other countries. You go to Germany and Trump is very unpopular. But in Poland, um, he's, uh, I would say he's uh, not love, but he's he's quite popular. He's seen as a strong leader, a strong man. And of course, Poland right now has a, a sort of a mini Trump, um, uh, uh, who's a very strong character, like Trump is. And uh, so there, he, the animosity 
towards Trump uh, that exists in Canada or France or Germany uh, is not. Uh, you don't see that here in uh, in Poland. But but to explain that the Amer- the polls have always had. I mean, literally throughout my entire lifetime, have had very strong close ties with the government of the United States. Even under communist times, the uh, opposition, the underground and the opposition parties kept very close ties. And, of course, Pope John Paul II, who, of course, was the first Polish pope, mm. uh, had very close ties. Well, when I say close ties, he, he communicated with the, with the government of the United States because his goal was the same as the American administration, to contain and eventually defeat uh, communism. Uh, I, since we're talking about it, and this isn't where we were supposed to go, but we'll come back right. around to NAFTA, I promise. Yes, yes. Uh, your thoughts on the, you know, things that obviously you're in the other other end of the world, but can your thoughts on what has happened with the release of Bob Woodward's book and the op-ed piece in the New York Times? The New York Times. Yes. Where, where, what does this do to the institution? Um, I mean, it's going, I'm not as pessimistic as other people are, because as I like to tell people and my students and my own sister who's lived in the States for 35 years, there's enormous um, checks and balances in the Canadian and the American system. And I don't believe that anybody can wreck it. I mean, uh, no president can. I'm not saying that it's, it doesn't cause damage, but the idea that we're suddenly going to tip into a sort of a fascist type system that the Germans did in the 1930s uh, because of bad economic times, I don't believe will happen because, and I don't just mean the obvious check and balance of elections. You know, there's media, there's journalists like you, talk radio, there's professors, there's NGOs, uh, there's just unbelievable numbers of checks and balances. Having said that, it's, it's, uh, it, it's it's going to cause problems, obviously. I mean, this this government, this administration, the Trump administration, is uh, suffering now. I think a crisis of legitimacy um, uh, because of those the op-ed and the by someone from inside his own government. Let's be clear. Um, and so he is uh, he's really being undermined by his own people. Uh, it does, this has happened before very quickly, Scott. Um, it, it, in uh, the last seventy, eighty years, uh, Truman, President Truman. I read articles on this when he was about to recognize the state of Israel. This was in 1947 or something. Uh, people in his own administration were trying to stop him from having a press conference, and he had to call a press conference without telling people in his own administration. Mm. And people likewise uh, in the Nixon administration, for different reasons, they were very worried that he might, you know, because of the stress and the strain of Watergate, that he might invoke the nuclear codes. And so there was very secretly some checks and balances put on the ability of the without telling the president of his uh, checks and balances on him uh, using, uh, 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 you know, pressing the button. And then the third one was Reagan in the 1980s uh, when he was going to go to before the Berlin Wall and say tear down this wall. There were people in his own administration trying to stop it right up to the, uh, the last minute. So there is a history of this, but that was not the same thing as this. In this instance, there are people doing this because they're worried about the very, shall we say, stability of, of the uh, president, of Mr. Trump, of President Trump. And so I think that this is going to be, uh, I, I can't see how he can be reelected in 2020, but at the same time, he has surprised us before, mm. but I think it's increasingly skeptical that he will win re-election in 2020. His, his negatives are very, they're, they're at all-time highs. Uh, is it different with this book uh, to the others simply because this is Bob Woodward and the credibility I, that he has over the years? I I do believe that. I mean, uh, my goodness, I can remember when he came out with the. I remember watching. I was riveted. I was a teenager in the in the early seventies, watching the Watergate yeah. and watching Bob Woodward on television. He is truly people. 
individuals don't normally become a, quote, institution. Well, I think Bob Woodward has come as close as one can to becoming an institution. He is so, I don't want to say revered, but he's so widely regarded because he was the guy that broke the Watergate and brought down a president. And he has enormous legitimacy and credibility uh, more so than you know the average journalist and so i think that this this is going to be far more damaging actually the book by woodward is far more damaging than the op-ed in the new york times by one of his own people will this tell us anything or does this just confirm through his respected journalism what we already know i think it's confirming to a lot of people what they already knew um, the question is how much of it will will penetrate the heartland, if we can call it that. I mean, there's people, in, you know, obviously, in Ottawa and in Washington who make their living from politics, not just the journalists, the NGOs, the academics, and that's all they focus on. That's their life. But the average person across the country, they're too busy, you know, running their own lives. They've got families to raise and so forth, so they don't follow every twitch that goes on in Ottawa or Washington. And then the question is, when do these these really bad uh, stories, when this, this information, when does it start to penetrate? Penetrate and leak out into the heartland across the nation, where you know ordinary people start to pay attention to this and focus on this. In other words, when will it will it cause them to change their vote? And I'm I'm starting to think that he uh, this is going to they'll look back one day and say that's when his uh, his time as president became numbered was when the uh, the Woodward book came out. Uh, that or if you love them, you still love them, and if you hate them, you'll hate them more. I mean, will well, it the base, I've driven through some of these states as recently as a year ago through Ohio and uh, rural Pennsylvania. I say rural Pennsylvania, meaning not Pittsburgh, not Philadelphia, and a lot of smaller towns, uh, Michigan, and uh, you know, and these these places that are not doing so well. Uh, and there's lots of places in the United States outside of the big cities that we all know about, outside of the San Francisco's and the Chicago's and the New York cities and so forth. There's a lot of people not doing well. And he is still, uh, I think, I don't want to say he's revered Trump, but he is still respected as that he's on their side, whereas the people in Washington are not. All right, let's talk about NAFTA. Both Donald Trump and Justin yes. Trudeau yesterday said that... Um that if they don't get what they want, they are willing to walk away from the North American Free Trade Agreement if, they, if they're not happy. Uh, is it worthwhile for the PM to comment? Uh, is it about keeping us informed and what's going on on this side of the border, or is this inflaming the president? Um, I actually think there's going to be a deal, and not because I'm some kind of a Pollyanna. Uh, it's because I think that Mr. Trudeau absolutely has no choice. He's got to have a deal. I, I've long argued, and I'm not the only one, there's many people who've said this, that there's two items, two issues on every prime minister's job description. doesn't matter if it's a liberal or a conservative, young or old, there's two files that they must manage. One, don't mess up and lose Quebec on your watch when you're the prime minister, whoever you are. Secondly, don't mess up and screw up the economic relationship with our largest trading partner, that's the United States. And I cannot imagine Mr. Trudeau going into the election of fall 19 and saying, you know, I've had a real, real tough time with pipelines. I promised you I'd bring you pipelines, uh, but uh, that didn't work out. And uh, I promised you I'd uh, come back with NAFTA. And by the way, we're out of NAFTA now. Okay, vote for me. I just can't see that as a selling argument. I think he has to have NAFTA. 
And I think what we're seeing right now is his in his comments, Mr. Schroeder's comments, he's starting to prepare the, the groundwork in public opinion. Whereas before, for a year and a half, he was saying, no way will we compromise on dairy. His latest comments in the last five days has said, we will not compromise compromise on a dispute mechanism, which is good, uh, that that's what we really do need, right. which suggests he's willing, finally, to treat the other issues as bargaining chips, so especially dairy and uh, probably telecom. On the, um, so I think that it's real, the, 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 the dispute mechanism, that that is the line in the sand. Um, on the cultural industries, uh, it's, it's such a wishy-washy, I mean by that it's fuzzy-wuzzy, it's hard to define it. Yeah. We've always subsidized the CBC, I think we always will, so they can do some wiggle word, uh, wordsmithing to say both sides won, and even though one may have compromised, I think that they'll, that's not a barrier. I think they'll give the Americans more access to the dairy, um, and they'll probably uh, meet the American demand on intellectual property for pharmaceutical products. So the one that they've really got to come up with and, and, and achieve is the, is the dispute mechanism. And Trump might surprise us and, and bend a little bit on that, especially if Trudeau gives him dairy. Because dairy is really important in those, sw- in those swing states, those Rust Belt states that put him into office in the first place. So there I can see the outline of a deal in the next several days. It seems that in Donald Trump's world, there's a winner and there's a loser. There's no win-win. Yep. So how does either one sell this as a win? And can Donald Trump sell that? Or does there have to be a loser? Um, I think it's going to be harder for Mr. Trudeau. Um, uh, Trump is just going to focus on one thing, as he always does. He's like a dog with a bone. And so, assuming he gets something on dairy, he's, got, he's already got the, uh, the, you know, the domestic content, making more cars or a larger percentage in the States. So he's going to say, look, I stood up to the Mexicans, I made them bend. And then he's going to make dairy as the test that he won. And he's going to say, I made the Canadians open up their markets. So there, I won, says well, Mr. Trump will say. With Mr. Trudeau, it's going to be more difficult, not impossible, but it's going to be more difficult simply because public opinion is in Canada is so hostile to Trump, and so we're very suspicious of Trump, and therefore we're going to be suspicious of anything that Mr. Trudeau negotiates with mm-hmm. Donald Trump. But uh, I, I think he's got enough, he, uh, Trudeau has enough uh, uh, capital, uh, political capital, that he's, he's going to carry the day, especially if he gets the dispute mechanism, because that is truly, I think, the grand prize, the big enchilada in these negotiations. What about the pipeline? Uh, in, pr- the Prime Minister sold everybody on the fact that this yep. government had gone over and above anyone else when yes. it came to safety, when it came to environment environmental concern, especially when it came to dealing with Indigenous people. Now we find out that hasn't happened, or clearly someone's upset. How does he move forward on this, especially when there were so many decisions in his favor up to this point? That's, you're absolutely right. I think that this is the even more difficult now than before. Um, I normally uh, completely agree or mostly agree with Andrew Coyne uh, on his uh, analyses of various issues. I didn't agree with him today. He was saying the court ruling was a win for the rule of law. Uh, I just, I don't, uh, very respectfully, I don't agree with him. The courts have been moving the yardsticks, which is not rule of law. I mean, the rule of law says there's a set of rules we must all obey. And they don't change, I mean, other than very, very slowly and incrementally. The courts, 
in the last five years or so have been moving the yardsticks on this. Nobody really knows what the duty to consult is. As you just pointed out, the Trudeau government's consulted like, like no one has ever consulted before. They've done it to a, to a much deeper and broader and more extensive level, and the court said not enough, even though it was far more than what was acceptable to earlier courts. The other point that I think is very important is they introduced, they changed the yardsticks on the environmental. That is to say, they condemned the NEB, the National Energy Board, which is the, uh, the body that approves the pipelines, for not taking into effect the impact of potential, maybe, maybe not, future oil spills mm. off the coast of B.C. You know, Scott, that's like saying uh, we should, before General Motors can build a car plant in southern Ontario, they have to take into effect the fact that the automobiles produced that car plant might end up in an automobile accident and some people can get killed. Well, that's absolutely true. But we've, uh, that any time you produce a product, there's potential liability. You make a pharmaceutical, and it might have adverse mm. consequences down the road. You know, you build a car, it can, might be, you know, get in car accidents. Planes crash. And my point is we've never said you cannot become a business or get, uh, create the business because down the road it might cause liability. So what does what the PM do now? We will approve it. What does the right? PM do now? How, how, how does he wiggle out of this? I, I, I think he has to uh, appeal this uh, because, not, not out of emotional reasons, but I think, remember, this is the federal court. People may not realize, but the federal court is not the Supreme Court of B.C. or the Supreme Court of Ontario. It is a court, yes, it's a federal court, but it doesn't have same legal prestige in the legal system as the superior courts across the country. And I think my own sense is the Supreme Court is uh, starting to realize that they really have created a mess on this and it needs, not that they shouldn't have uh, imposed the duty to consult with Indigenous peoples, but now it needs clarity and clarification because it's just blooming confusion. So by appealing it to the Supreme Court of Canada, which the government has the right to do, they can seek a final resolution and clarity over where are the boundaries, where are the yardsticks, what constitutes adequate and complete and full uh, con consultation. And I think we desperately need that in Canada, so I think he's got to do that. And then the other, um, I, I, I still think he's got to discuss um, the notwithstanding clause, and there's been a couple of columns already written saying you can't out get out of the duty to consult, and I, I certainly have never made that argument myself. But but the the imposition to analyze the impact of future oil spills <laughs> that could be invoked and set aside by invoking the notwithstanding clause because that has been created by the courts out of thin air. Ian Lee has been with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, today speaking with us from Warsaw, Poland. Ian, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Had a great day. My pleasure, Scott. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.